Hello, everyone, and welcome or welcome back to Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir. I'm Tara Boyce, and this podcast is about my journey through alcoholism, mental illness, basically resisting life at every turn to recovery, to a life that I love and I'm thrilled to be a part of. The format's generally that I read a chapter from my memoir. I'll talk about some of the things that come up or some of the things that you bring up or even just the things that are coming up in my own life, in my own process of recovery. I'm at almost three years now, alcohol-free, and I'm still learning. Things are still changing, and that's what makes it great as I'm actually living. And I really look forward every time I release an episode to hear your feedback and to just feel like I'm connecting with people. If you're here for the first time, I hope you'll want to go back and check out the story from the beginning. But speaking of the story as it's being told, as I review what I know is coming in this memoir of things getting increasingly dark... I remember this podcast is called Addicted to Recovery, Not Addicted to Misery, and I am wary of accidentally sensationalizing addiction. I'd like to think, well, this won't come off as glamorous or triggering to anyone because it's really just sad. Then I remember myself when I was 14, reading Evelyn Lau's Runaway, A Diary of a Street Kid, and thinking how exciting it all sounded fantasizing that if only I too had what it took to run away from home and become a child prostitute to support my drug addiction, well, I'd be a really interesting person then. Even later, when I myself was indeed already a train wreck, I'd read autobiographies of people with addictions, eating disorders, mental illnesses, and I'd feel like it was all terribly dramatic and even aspirational. Like, if I could get that messed up, I'd have a story to tell. I'd, I'd be someone. Or even reading them thinking, huh, I'm way more messed up than her. I guess I won. I'm still waiting for whatever badge of honor I thought was forthcoming. I guess I'll keep checking the mail. Now, I'm not saying that my alcoholism spiraled out of control because I read too many books and was very impressionable. I'm saying that my sick mind thought that there was something noble in suffering, even self-created suffering, because suffering was the filter through which I experienced my life. But really, most of it was incredibly banal. Sure, I can give you the highlights of dysfunction, compressing a few highs and lows of a year into a chapter, but the reality of it was just low-level despair and demoralization with a lot of repetition. A lot of days just wandering around, letting alcohol dictate what I was doing, where I was going to go, what I was going to do, who I was going to see, walking around like a dazed zombie in my barely lived life, and there's nothing sexy or even scandalous about it. I'm not trying to shock anyone or sensationalize anything, and I really want to emphasize that stories like these only get told by people who survive. And a lot of people don't. And there's nothing noble about playing with your own life. And by extension, the lives of everybody who cares about you. To reach some fantasy of your life as some gritty drama on HBO.
a lot of people don't make it out. I'm usually confused by the fact that I have. So what I really want to emphasize is that recovery is the interesting part. I've had so many more great moments compressed in the last three years than the, well, 20 years before that. I called this podcast Addicted to Recovery because my sober life is so much more compelling than any of that unnecessary manufactured melodrama ever was because it's real. It's not Groundhog Day. My relationships are real. My accomplishments are real. I'm growing. I'm not just stuck in this carnival of the same lesson over and over again, repackaged in just uglier and uglier wrapping paper. So if any of the story of my downfall sounds attractive to you in any way, just to let you know, the most consistent emotions I experienced were shame and just a profound, dull loneliness. I drank alone most of the time, often in bathroom stalls. There were no glamorous parties. Wherever I was actually welcome at a point were just a bunch of stoned, hygienically compromised people lolling their heads on dingy couches. I often woke up on the side of the road. I couldn't tell even the people who were closest to me what I was doing or how I felt. I just lied to everyone. A lot of my teeth rotted out. Sometimes I couldn't bring myself to shower for over a week. I threw up all the time. No one in my life trusted me. On a good day, I would find myself lying in bed alone, watching drivel on the internet without the physical or emotional capacity to do much else, sweating through my sheets, just clutching a bottle of whatever. I barely felt human. There weren't any string quartets playing in the background during my low moments. My eye makeup didn't look stylishly smudged by a makeup artist. The people in my life who I hurt were real people, not supporting characters, and it was all devastatingly boring when it wasn't also crushingly depressing. And recovery is interesting. When I'm with people, I'm actually with them. I have the capacity to learn new things and to be available to new experiences. Even the shitty times, well, they're real. I can enjoy how food tastes. I can focus on reading a book. I can make plans for the future. A future that, for a while, it seemed like I was not going to be able to have. So as I jump into this chapter and the upcoming ones, just a reminder that Me telling my story of when I was active, there is still a storytelling element going on that might make it sound less awful than it actually was. Otherwise, there'd just be episode after episode after episode of me describing how it felt to lie in bed and watch reruns of The Bachelorette and cry. Alright, so disclaimers aside, let's get into the chapter. I bring you, how the hell did I get here? I wake up hungover or maybe still drunk to my phone ringing and ringing through my lacerating headache. I ignore it. Moments later, it starts ringing again. The guy sleeping next to me grumbles enough that I pick it up, mumbling, hello, my breath acrid, my mouth chalky and sticky. 
There's a frantic woman on the line demanding, Are you Tara? I grunt affirmative. I'd like to know what this magical evening you spent with my fiancé is all about. Ah, shit. Which one was that? I've been flinging my body around so carelessly to whoever would take it. I wasn't really keeping much track of their names, let alone details like which of them might have had fiancés. She's asking me all these questions about whether we use protection because she doesn't want to get an STD, and I look over at the naked guy beside me, and he's hearing the whole thing. After I manage to get the woman off the phone, he asks me to leave. Shucks. He didn't even want to kiss me goodbye. He was one of the only guys I'd slept with more than once, so I'd been hoping it might turn into something more if it wasn't for that hysterical woman. I mean, God, it's not my fault some guys can't keep it in their pants. I'm not the engaged one. I gathered my clothes, then ducked into the living room, sucking out the remaining droplets of beer and wine in the abandoned bottles from the night before, as there was nothing left in my bag. I look up, and the guy, who'd slept with me just a few hours before, is standing there with his arms crossed, looking at me like I'm all kinds of trash. I think to myself, how the hell did I get here? And this is how... Around the same time my best friend was preparing to take her shot at love in Norway, my sister had been whisked off to Australia by the power of love as well. My actual sister and my soul sister had been my primary grounding relationships, and without them I experienced a sort of shift in gravity, like there was nothing anchoring me to who I really was anymore. In response, I became simultaneously needy and nasty with Leo. I felt abandoned by Andy and Angie and, not being sober or sane enough to acknowledge this or talk through it, I lashed out at Leo for all the ways he was not them. At a point, we were sitting on my front porch, we were both a bit tipsy, and he said something romantic to which I snapped back, "'Well, it's not like you're my soulmate or anything.' which I knew hurt him, and at the time I think it was just because I was mad that he wasn't interested in reading all of my poetry for class. I corrected his vocabulary constantly. I even criticized his thoughts because I thought they weren't sufficiently philosophical compared to Andy's thoughts. But still, terrified of the stillness of solitude, I would start to sulk whenever he wanted to leave, even if I knew he had to work the next day. I'd guilt trip him for spending time with his guy friends and not inviting me, even though I'd always sworn I'd never be one of those girls. Then, it turned out, he was spending so much time with his guys at the jam space because he was writing a song. For me. I'd pressure him into drinking more than he wanted to, even if he was driving, because I felt closer to him when he was drunk, and because he was more tolerant of my drunkenness when he was drinking. If I thought he was being a bit too much of a stick in the mud, I'd do really classy things like make out with one of our friend's girlfriends, because she didn't mind getting as drunk as I wanted her to get, and I thought I was in some sort of college girls gone wild show, and the boys would find all that behavior super sexy, not the desperate attention-seeking behavior it actually was. 
Meanwhile, a mud-slinging tournament between Leo and my parents had been revving up. More and more often, I was coming home to my parents' house completely loaded. And it was probably more than my parents knew because I'd often come home after they were asleep. And who was bringing me home? Leo was. It must be his fault I was drinking so much. It must be his fault that he couldn't keep me in line. Then Leo would shoot back, well, she lives with you. You guys have booze all over the house. So if you're so concerned about her drinking, maybe you should be doing something to keep her in line. I'd sit on the sidelines during these battles, feeling highly victimized by all this conflict. Like, didn't they know how all this fighting about me made me feel? But mainly, I was grateful that no one was really suggesting it was me who should be keeping me in line. Even though I thought I had dodged yet another bullet of responsibility, I didn't see the hidden consequences. Leo was traditional in his values, and getting along with his prospective in-laws meant something to him. The hostility between him and my parents led him to question whether we actually had a future together, more so than my drunken antics. Well, at least that's what I told myself at the time because it was easier to blame my parents than to take responsibility for the behaviors that had incited the wars in the first place. Leo thought we should take a break. Panic ensued. So I did what I did best when I felt that my back was against a wall. I schemed, I lied, I did a little dance. Even though we were on a break, I insisted we talk almost every day because we were still friends, right? And I would tell him about the work I was doing on myself to tackle my demons. I wrote some speeches, I crafted some sob stories, I invented some imaginary friends I was having a grand old sober time catching up with and how I really felt like this break was good for us to realize we didn't need each other but to learn to appreciate each other I had taken him for granted yes indeedy but no more and the next time I saw him I got him drunk and pounced him and he seemed to regret it afterwards but He conceded that we should try to work on our relationship, I think out of a sense of honor or even guilt, which felt awful. I felt like I was hanging on by a thread, trying to prove myself with someone who was only with me out of a sense of obligation. He just didn't look at me the same way. So I did what any reasonable person would do in that situation to take her power back. I cheated on him. Anyone remember Shane from the earlier chapters? That guy with a girlfriend that I had a relationship with in my head. The guy I desperately wanted to lose my virginity to while listening to Silverchair. The guy who I had practically stalked while playing out many elaborate fantasies, believing we were one day destined to fall madly into young adult fiction, twilight-caliber love, all the while ignoring the fact that he had a girlfriend and just wasn't that into me. Well, me and Shane had kept in touch, and he actually didn't have a girlfriend anymore. 
We decided to meet up for drinks at the local dive bar, and at some point we ended up sitting on a park bench overlooking the water with a bottle of wine from the depeneur nearby, slushy and silly, and I finally saw that look on his face I had always dreamed of seeing, that I think I might be up for this look that every girl dreams of seeing, and I decided I just have to get this out of my system at some point. Then bam, all my years of imagining how his lips would feel against mine, whether he'd run his fingers through my hair delicately or pull me towards him forcefully, all of those questions culminated into a blackout. The next day I came to, having been delivered by a taxi, I had a foggy recollection of a make-out session, like... I knew it had happened. The blackout wasn't complete. I just couldn't remember how it felt, how long it lasted, if it was any good. And I was far more upset in that moment about the fact that I couldn't remember what it had been like than the fact that I had deeply betrayed someone who loved me. Even though things were uncertain between Leo and I, he always treated me with consideration and respect. I was bummed that I couldn't remember Shane's makeout style. The easy explanation is that I just thought I'd jump out of that sinking ship that was my relationship. Classic self-sabotage that if he was going to bail, then at least now he'd have a reason to reject me. And it wasn't just going to be because I wasn't enough. And sure, that was probably part of it. However, I think what really motivated me or at least what motivated me to tell Leo about it, was a belief that this might actually heal the wound in our relationship. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. In my twisted mind, that's where the magic happens, baby. In the chaos, in the drama. Or perhaps it would culminate in some sort of a duel for my love. In all the love triangles on TV, the men in question are totally willing to forfeit their dignity to win the affections of the woman they love. I thought it might awaken in Leo some competitive need to win me. I imagined he was only willing to let me go because he hadn't had a taste of what it would really feel like to lose me. He'd never really had to picture me with another man. And I thought this would work because that's how my mind worked. If somebody I cared about started to pull away or showed interest in someone else, then bam, I was in it. I was hooked. I would do anything to fight to get them back. And my assumption that Leo was also like this basically just meant that I hadn't been paying attention I really only confessed because I imagined it would play out like a scene in a CW teen drama. He'd say something like, How could you? And do some toxic masculine thing like punch a hole in a wall. I'd wail, I fell into the arms of another man because I'm afraid you don't love me anymore. Somehow in the next shot I'd be bandaging his wounded fist. Don't know where I got the bandages, but we'd gaze into each other's eyes with a rekindled passion. And he'd say, I can see that I was pushing you away. All the problems we have, they seem so trivial now, imagining you with him. I cannot bear it. Oh, I am angry, but my passion for you is a conflagration mightier than jealousy. 
The next shot, we'd be just opposed by an active fireplace. Then, of course, the frenzied lovemaking so electric it erases any remaining sting of the slight infidelity. And that is not how it played out. My understanding of human emotions as informed by the O.C. was flawed. My understanding of Leo's values was flawed. He didn't value drama. He valued security, honesty, loyalty. When I told him there was no scene, his face just fell in confusion, and then it hardened. He was very quiet. It occurred to me, the way it hadn't before, that my actions were causing a real person real pain. It had somehow taken me almost three years to figure that out, that he was a real person and not just a character in the melodrama of me. However futile, I launched into full damage control mode, saying it was really just a kiss, barely even a kiss, and he kissed me, and I was really drunk, really, really drunk. I mean, it was kind of shitty of him to take advantage of me like that when he knew I had a boyfriend, and you know I've been a mess lately because of Andy and Angie moving away, and maybe I was trying to push you away too because I hate myself and I'm self-destructive, but really what happened with Shane was nothing. I don't even know why I I told you it was so silly. I shouldn't have been drinking. It, it's really a wake-up call that I should cut down on the drinking, but for real this time. But I'm going to need your support, and I just want you to know how much I love you. And all the while, I'm verbally scrambling. I'm wondering when he's going to stop being so damn quiet and so damn stoic, and if his face will ever unharden. He didn't dump me immediately. I think he was processing, and... He wasn't much of a reactive type. It dragged out a few more weeks of going through the motions of our relationship, but I could tell he'd already checked out. The breakup itself, an excruciating week-long ordeal of me vacillating through all the stages of grief except acceptance. I called him dozens of times a day, begging him to come over until he conceded, apologizing for all my shortcomings, apologizing for existing, promising to change, and not just the drinking, I change everything. Like that thing about me not wanting kids, whatever, I'm all about the children now. They are our future. And of course, if they were our kids, of course I'd love them. And you shouldn't have taken me so seriously. Come on, it's not like I know what I want anyways. Except you, I know I want you. And we've been through too much to just throw it all away. And of course, I threatened self-harm, an old party trick that never got old. But in this case, it was true that I actually didn't know what I might do to myself if he left me. And doesn't he care at all what happens to me? I even followed him to work at the bay where he sold suits looking like a haggard hobo misplaced in a suburban mall, just sat there and wouldn't leave. Well, Except to go to the liquor store in the same mall. I mean, come on, a girl has needs. But there went any chance of commission for him that day. After this display, he conceded to revisit our relationship in a month. But until then, I'd have to give him his space. A nugget of denial was dangled in front of me, and I took it. A few weeks later, I found out he was dating someone else. He'd never had any intention of revisiting our relationship in a month, and I think I knew that. 
but I still gave the whole pregnancy scare thing a shot for good measure. At least I was consistent. My whole social life, my whole support system had consisted of Leo and his friends, Andy, and my sister and her friends. I had very few of my own, and even those had come to like Leo a little bit more than me over the last three years. Since I'd gotten to know all Leo's friends over three years, I thought some of those friendships would survive the breakup, but they all completely discarded me after the relationship ended. Had they ever even liked me in the first place? Maybe it was the cheating thing or the fake pregnancy thing. I personally lacked any intrinsic self-protective instinct. As far as my drinking went, I kept it together as best I could because failing to do so had social consequences. I couldn't just drink every second of every day because then I imagined I'd end up single with no friends, my worst fear, but... Oh wait, I was already single with no friends. What was the point of restraint anymore? Everyone was going to leave me anyways. Maybe this was the way it was meant to be. No more feeling guilty about my drinking. Now there was nothing left between me and total self-destruction. Alright, well, that's the end of that chapter, and as you probably gathered, I didn't handle rejection gracefully. And this is the difference between me and my active addiction and me in recovery. I have a sense of worth now. I feel a responsibility towards myself as someone I have to take care of. And there are people in my life I love very much, and I'd be really hurt if I lost any of them, but I don't think I would respond to that loss by trying to destroy myself. But it didn't happen overnight. One of the reasons for my many, many relapses is that I didn't believe I had any value, and therefore I didn't believe that I deserved protection. When it comes down to it, it's our beliefs that shape our experience more than what actually happens to us. And for example, if my boyfriend dumped me and I believe that, well, this means I'm unlovable trash, I hope he'll be sorry when I drink myself to death, that's going to inspire very different actions from if my belief was, maybe we just weren't right for each other, or it wasn't the right time, or maybe I need to look at what went wrong and the part that I played in it. Similarly, if I'm in rehab and I believe that drinking is a privilege that is being revoked or that not being able to drink anymore is a punishment for my misdeeds, well, no wonder the first thing I want to do when I leave is drink again. If my life is starting to get better and I'm feeling uncomfortable because deep down I believe I deserve to be in pain all the time, that I'm a harbinger of misery, that I only function in dysfunction and chaos, and that's where I belong, the intellectual understanding that self-destruction is bad is not going to be enough. What I didn't realize the extent of until I wrote this memoir and started sharing it with you is how deeply enmeshed my flawed beliefs about alcohol were in regards to my equally problematic beliefs about intimacy and relationships. 
And it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins, and I don't really think it's possible for me to separate the two of them, because alcohol was often the reason why my relationships began and ended, and it was also what I used to get over the pain of those endings. My increased alcohol intake always led to more romantic and sexual drama or mistakes, And those mistakes always led to more drinking. And every time I stopped drinking, I would feel this cavern of emptiness inside me that I thought could only be filled with, if not drinking, then a relationship or somebody's attention. And I couldn't resolve one without the other one just flaring out of control. The only reason this still isn't a major problem for me is kind of by accident in that I was already in a relationship when I got sober and... All the work I did on myself to stop drinking, I kind of applied the same philosophies and theories and behaviors to just how I conducted myself in general, or at least in theory, because let me tell you, for a while I was controlling, mercurial, and when I was undergoing this process of transformation in my sobriety, it actually made things pretty hard in my relationship in different ways for a while, and part of me loved that. You know, part of me loved that there was still some dysfunction I could cling to. After my first year of sobriety, I thought that I was, I was, I was all done. You know, I had, I had healed. I had learned all the things about spirituality and being a good person. And I was ready to tell everyone else how to live their lives too. And I was really not as evolved as I thought I was. You know, honestly, I'll probably look back on what I'm saying now in a couple of years and be like, oh my God, what a hot mess she is. But at least I expect that of myself now. So I think that's progress, right? Actually, this is a perfect time in my story to bring on a guest. Yeah, I'm going to be having my first ever guest on the next episode. I thought it would be fun to kind of bring somebody in to talk about some of the issues that are relevant to where I am in the journey at the end of every season, or I don't know, maybe in the middle of a season, if I just feel like that's the thing to do then. The podcast is still going to be generally just me, but every once in a while I'm going to mix it up. I think at first I was afraid to do that because I'm afraid of losing the control of the way I put this together and I'm able to edit it and I'm able to overly curate the experience. I've chilled out on that a little bit. You know, there was a moment before where I didn't like the way I said S, and I didn't edit it out. So, yeah, more progress. My guest is going to be Brianne Davis, actress and author of Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, and we're going to get into it. It's going to be fun. And hey, maybe you can help me out if you have any questions you'd like to ask her or ask me or, as always, any feedback or questions or comments on this week's episode. You know I want to hear them. And you know you can send them to interactivememoir at gmail.com. That is in the show notes. Or find me on Facebook. I'm Tara Nicole Boyce on Facebook. Join the Facebook group, which is also in the show notes. Really, your support means the world to me. I was just thinking that it was about a year ago that I thought, maybe I'll just do it. Maybe I'll just take my book and turn it into a podcast. And it was kind of a dare. I kind of dared myself to do it. And I never really thought that people would like it. 
I wasn't sure if anyone would actually do the interactive part with me. I wasn't sure if anyone would listen to it at all except for my family, but actually I didn't want my family to listen to it because awkward. And honestly, even if two or three people had given me feedback that it was something that was valuable to them, I probably would have kept doing it. But when I get messages from you about how it made you reflect on something in your life or when you let me know that you recommended it to a friend or if you tell me it helped you process some stuff like, oh, nothing feels better than that. So yeah, please keep the messages coming. Knowing that I had this, that this was something I was committed to doing, got me through a few difficult times in my recovery. You know, just because you get sober doesn't necessarily mean that everything works out exactly the way you want it to, especially when you never really learned how to adult because you were too busy getting drunk and having other people take care of you. I'm definitely still a work in progress and... I have to remind myself to be okay with that, and I hope wherever you are that you're okay with that too, because where you are is the only place that you can be right now, and also, you have so much more to offer the world than you even know. Until next time.